All right, John chapter 16, picking it up in verse 23. And in that day you shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Heretofore have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs. But the time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. At that day ye shall ask in my name, and I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loveth you, because ye have loved me, and have believed that I came out from God. I came forth from the Father, and am come into the world again. Leave the, I leave the world, and go to the Father." His disciples said unto him, Lo, now speakest thou plainly, and speakest no proverb. Now we are sure that thou knowest all things, and needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou camest forth from God. Jesus answered them, Do ye now believe? Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered every man to his own, and shall leave me alone, and yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And all God's children said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open this proverb unto us, that you would grant us a measure of thy spirit, that we might appreciate and understand the truths that thou hast set before us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On that last hymn we sang, It is so sweet to trust in Jesus, and how I've learned to trust him. Learning to trust Jesus takes a long time, and there's a lot of trouble. Uh, tribulation is the word the Lord uses here, that we might learn to trust him, because it's when we are in need, it's when we are fearful, it's when we cry out to him, it's when we've come to the end of our rope that we do look to him, and then he answers us, and then we learn to trust him. So we're going to see some of that here today. I want us to appreciate the context of what's set before us here in terms of where the Lord is in his ministry. Um, However much time it would take you to read what I have just read, then read John chapter 17 and kind of mill about a little bit here, then he's going to the cross. So we're really at the very end of what's referred to as pastoral discourse. It's the... um, They've completed the Last Supper. Supper. Um, Judas has departed the group, and it's just Christ with his 11, and he's sharing with them some things which should bring them comfort because he knows he's just getting ready to go out the door, cross the brook Cedron, go up into the uh, Mount of Olives, into the Garden of Gethsemane, and pray, and his disciples are going to fall asleep. He's going to be alone, just like he says here, and then, of course, he's going to be betrayed, which we pick up in John 18. So there's very little time between... Now, when he's speaking with them and when he's going to be betrayed and led to the cross. Nevertheless, he speaks these wonderful words of comfort. But what we should appreciate here is he says in verse 25, he says, These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs. Well, what is a proverb? What does the Bible say a proverb is? How does it define a proverb? Well, a proverb is a dark saying. It's something that is difficult to understand. It is can be a bit of a riddle, it can be an enigmatic statement, uh, um, and it requires help in understanding what it means. And this is a basic principle in the scripture, is as I've shared this with people, and they, they 
they don't believe me. <laughs> they don't understand what I'm saying because I'm speaking in a proverb. But the Bible is not written to be understood by people absent the benefit of the Holy Spirit. And so we require the Holy Spirit to help us interpret the Bible because God is the author of the Bible. And it says that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So the Holy Ghost, who is God, is the author. And if you want to understand a book, ask the author. One of the more famous um, Proverbs in the Bible, of course, takes place in uh, the book of Judges, chapter 14. It's where um, Samson is, um, the Lord is seeking a reason to provoke the um, the Philistines, and so Samson goes down seeking himself a wife, and on the way down, he slays a, a lion, and then when he's walking uh, back past the lion, he sees that in the lion that there are... Um, um, Sees the carcass, behold, a swarm of bees and honey in the carcass of the lion. So he feeds on the honey that's in the lion, and he brings some home to his parents. But then he sets a riddle before the Philistines and would ask that they could interpret it. And the riddle is, and the Bible uses the word riddle, in verse 14 of Judges 14, it says, Out of the eater came forth meat, and out of the strong came forth sweetness. So he sets that uh, enigmatic statement before the Philistines, and they don't know what it means, but in keeping with the principles of we need somebody to help us understand a proverb, they ask his wife what it means. And so after putting uh, her under great distress and duress, threatening to kill her and her family, why, she reveals what the, um, the answer to the riddle is. And the answer is, what is sweeter than honey, and what is stronger than a lion? So I would ask you this question, what in fact is sweeter than honey? That would be the gospel. And what is stronger than the lion? Well, that would be the lion of the tribe of Judah who was slain, and out forth from him comes the gospel. So that's an example of a proverb that is set before the people. And so in um, Psalm 78, the Lord helps us to appreciate what we are to do with proverbs, that we are to teach them to our children who will teach them unto their children so that the wonderful works of God might be known. So in Psalm 78, I'll read the first seven verses there. He says, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. In other words, lean forward. Pay attention to what I'm about to share with you here. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Pay attention to what the law says. We know that the law always teaches us about Christ. So he says here, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. A dark saying is a saying that's difficult to see. It's not an evil saying that, as we would understand the word evil, but it's something that's difficult to see and appreciate and understand. So he's going to utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. So these are things that have been passed down. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord. So the praises of the Lord are set forth in Proverbs and his strength, and his wonderful works that he hath done. You know that everything in the scripture testifies of Jesus. Everything in here is pointing to the cross in one way or another. And so these are the things that the Lord wants us to share, that we would understand them. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children. So he's established a testimony in Jacob, and a law, pointed a law in Israel. Both of those names are synonyms for Christ himself. What does it say in Revelation chapter 10, uh, excuse me, chapter 19, verse 10? I'll read that to you. It says here, it's verse 8, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry, it was 19.10, like I said. Um, he said unto them, 
this is he's, uh, John is receiving revelation from an angel, and he falls down at his feet. He says, and I fell down at his feet to worship him. And he said, the angel said to John, see thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. So the saints have the testimony of Jesus. It's been handed down throughout time to all the saints. They have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So what he's telling us here is he said a testimony in Jacob and Israel, and that testimony is speaking about Christ. So those are the things that we are to pass down. Um, he, that he commanded of our fathers, and back in, in Psalm 78, that they should make them known to their children. So we teach our children about Christ. That the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should rise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And so in verse 7 here brings a summary here that the point is, is that when you share these things with people, they would have no hope in themselves in their own work, but would hope exclusively in God. Of course, Christ is God. So that's what uh, the Lord would have us to do. And so also speaking about Proverbs as being dark sayings in the book of Proverbs, I'll read the first six verses here so that we would again appreciate. We see this, these wonderful parallels and types in scriptures here. But in Proverbs 1, verse 1, it says, The proverb of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. So you're already setting before us here a father-son relationship, the father being God and the son being Christ. Verse 2, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, and judgment, and equity. We know in 1 Corinthians it says that Christ has been made wisdom unto us, so we want to appreciate the things that the Lord is teaching us. To give subtly, which means uh, understanding to the simple, to the young man, uh, knowledge and discretion. The Lord's intention is here is that through this process that we would understand the Bible, that we would understand the gospel. Verse 5, a wise man will hear and will increase learning. Who's the wise man? That's the one in Christ. He's speaking to the saints here. Our wisdom we receive and knowledge and understanding of God we receive through the Holy Ghost. Verse 5, a wise man will hear and will increase learning, and a man of understanding shall attain to wise counsel. Why? To understand a proverb and the interpretation, the words of the wise and their dark sayings. So the intent here is he's setting before us these proverbs that we would seek the wisdom of the Holy Ghost so that we would understand the things that God would have us to know and appreciate of himself. So back in John here, chapter um, 16, the, the Lord is saying here, but the time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. And this we've talked about before in the previous weeks as we've gone through John chapter 16, that the Lord is talking about sending the Holy Ghost to his saints. Once they receive the Holy Ghost, they're not going to be standing there asking Jesus questions anymore. He's going to be gone. He's going to the cross, the grave, and then he's going to glory. But the Holy Ghost will be there, um, which he calls the Comforter, and we know that he himself is the Comforter as well. And we'll see that again in verse 33. But they are going to receive the Holy Ghost, as indeed have all of the saints. And he says, at that day, you shall ask in my name. And up in verse 24, he's just said, hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Why have they asked nothing in his name? Because not having yet received the Holy Spirit, they don't know what the will of God is. They are not coming to God uh, according to his will and according to his authority and asking uh, consistent with what would the will of God be for their lives and what they should bring in to him 
by virtue of um, prayer and petition. Once they receive the Holy Ghost, then they will come in the Lord's name. They will come by virtue of his authority. They will come with an understanding of what the will of God is, him having placed that in their hearts. So that day is yet future for these people. And then he says here, and I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you. And here's the reason why. For the Father himself loveth you. And he wants us to appreciate here that, well, we know that the Lord ever in ever intercedes on our behalf. And we see that, it, and not only does the, does the Lord intercede on our behalf, but so does the Holy Spirit intercedes in our prayers. In Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27, um, we can appreciate that both the Lord intercedes, Christ, and does the Holy Spirit. I'm certain you've had times when you've gone to prayer and you are so grieved about a particular thing that you can't even articulate your needs to the Lord. You can't put it into words so you just, you're on your knees and you're praying and you're just kind of groaning within yourself. And the Lord puts words to those um, groanings. In verse 26 of Romans 8, he says, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And so there we find ourselves in prayer with the Lord, and we're just upset, and we're grieved, and so the Lord takes what's on our heart and presents it before the Lord. In verse 27, he continues here, and he says, And he that searches the hearts. Who is it that searches the hearts? It's Christ. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, it says that all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. It is the Lord that searches our hearts. And so he says, and he that searches the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit. How is it that Christ knows the mind of the Spirit? Because he's one with the Spirit. We Indeed, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of Christ. And then it continues, it says, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. The Greek word in verse 26 for intercession is different from the Greek word in verse 27. And then if you follow down to verse um, 34, again, speaking of Christ, it says, It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God and who also maketh intercession for us. So Christ ever makes intercession for us. We know that um, he is a high priest, which can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Uh, he was in all points tempted as we are, yet he's without sin. So he, he certainly knows how uh, vexing sin is to us and how uh, it does easily beset us. Uh, nevertheless, he intercedes for us and, and he loves us. Um, what the Lord is teaching here is that I don't have to make a case for you by virtue of who I am. You can go directly to the Father because he loves you. And so what follows in here is something that we should appreciate in terms of the relationship that we have with God the Father. That's why the Lord refers to him all throughout the scriptures as our heavenly Father. And so whatever the epitome of a, of a uh, earthly relationship is between and our Father, between us and our Father, of course, our relationship between uh, us and our Heavenly Father is far greater. He is far more loving. He is far more giving than anything a human father could ever um, hope uh, to emulate. Uh, he has shared with us how much he loves us when he gave us his only begotten son. And he does tell us that in the previous chapter, that there's greater love hath this than that anyone should lay down their life for another. 
And Christ uh, was given of the Father, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, demonstrating to his people for whom his Son died, and only them, this uh, incredible love that he has for his children, for his people. And indeed, in Romans chapter 8 also, we are exhorted to um, ask things of God, because it says there, uh, you know, that he gave his son for us, and having given us his son, how shall he not with him freely give all things? There isn't anything that we could possibly ask of the Lord that would even compare with the gift that he's given to us in his son, um, Christ Jesus. Anything would, would compare with that. So he's telling us in verse 27 here that the God, the God the Father himself loveth you. That the Father loves us, and so we must appreciate that relationship that we have with him, that we can go to the Father. Scripture uh, identifies us as his sons and daughters. We are his children. It identifies us as the brother of Christ. There's scripture that identifies us in all of these wonderful uh, anthropomorphic terms that, that we should appreciate, uh, being people who have fathers and, and have brethren, um, so that God loves us. We should appreciate the same way that he loves Jesus Christ, his son with whom he is one with. Uh, again, I've referred to this on many occasions in John chapter 17 so that we would appreciate this, the unity we have between us and the Godhead. In verse 21 of John 17, I'll read it again because every week you should be thinking about how much the Lord loves you and how you are united with him. Jesus is praying here that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee. So the unity of the Father and the Son. God the Father is in God the Son. God the Son's in God the Father. That they may be one in us. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. So we're in Christ who is in the Father that puts us in the Father. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them that they may be one even as we are one. So we're united with each other as the Father is united with the Son. And in verse 23, I in them and thou in me. If Christ is in us, and the Father is in the Son, that puts the Father and the Son in us. And then if you continue here, he talks about them, and as he continues in verse 23, he says, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Very strong verse there about how much the Father loves us. He loves us the same way he loves the Son. And it's very hard to comprehend how great and deep and eternal that love is. Second half of verse 24, verse 24b says, For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. So God knew us in outside of time, in eternity past. He knew all of his children. He knew all of his elect. He loved every one of them with the same degree and integrity and intensity that he loves um, his son, Jesus Christ. And so because of that love, the Lord is sharing with us that we can go to the Father and that he will hear us because he loves us um, so much. And then he throws what I think here is a bit of an enigmatic statement. And he says, the Father himself loveth you because ye have loved me and have believed that I came out from God. Now, if you're a disciple hearing this, these would be wonderfully reassuring verses because I have no doubt that these men are, um, are doubting what it means to believe God and what it, what it means to love Christ and what it means to believe on him. But the Lord is telling them that they do believe um, that he came from God. Now, having said that, when you get down uh, a few verses, he's going to ask the question. 
He says, do you, in verse 31, do ye now believe? Like right now, do you believe? And then he's going to say in verse 34, uh, behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, everyone to his own, and shall leave me alone. So it's enigmatic. He's saying, yeah, you love me, um, but by the way, you're going to be scattered, and uh, do you really believe me? So I think this is a little bit enigmatic. It's per- proverbial. But one of the things that we should appreciate with respect to the way God speaks In Romans chapter 4, verse 17, he lays things out for us in a very simple way that we should ever understand. In verse 17 of Romans chapter 4, he says, God calleth those things which be not as though they were. God calleth those things which be not as though they were. God knows the beginning from the end, and he knows how uh, this is all going to work out, of course, because he's he's the author and finisher of our salvation. Um, he says this statement with respect to Abraham in Genesis 17:5 when he tells Abraham, quote, I have made thee a father of many nations, and that is before Isaac is born. So how can he be a father of many nations before his son is born, past tense? Well, because that is going to, in fact, be true. He is going to be a father of many nations, and the seed of those nations are in his loins, which were all the way in the loins of Adam uh, when the Lord made Adam. So... God is telling him and he's reassuring him, his disciples, that yes, you believe that I came from God. Um, But there's a little bit of a difference here, what he says in verse 28. Again, this is a little bit enigmatic. He says, you have believed that I came out from God. Verse 28, I came forth from the Father. So we know that God is Father. Jesus is God as well. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. But again, the Lord is helping us to appreciate the relationship that he has with the Father and the relationship that we too have with the Father. So it's they're both true, but they're just a little bit different. The emphasis is on the relationship. What Jesus is saying is that I came of my own free will. I stepped out of glory because of my own free will. We know it says that in Philippians uh, chapter 2, picking up in verse 5. Um, but again, the emphasis here is on the relationship that we would appreciate. He says, I am come into the world again. I leave the world and go to the Father. Um, that in a nutshell is what Christ did. Mission accomplished. Hey, I came, I did what I needed to do, and I'm going back. Now, he hasn't gone back to the cross yet, but if you, ever, if you just stand way back from um, what the Lord has accomplished um, and consider what he's done, very simply, he spoke everything into existence. He spoke the world into existence. He formed a man out of the dust of the earth. He took the woman out of the man. He put the Holy Ghost in the woman uh, to uh, fertilize the egg that was of the woman. And out from that came Christ, the man that was fully man and fully God. And then from there he went to the cross, the grave, and then to glory, taking with him all of the saints um, to glory. So very simply, he says, I came into the world. Um, I came from the Father. I came into the world. And I leave the world and go to the Father. He's going to accomplish everything that he needs to accomplish. And so we should never have any doubt. I remember when I was a young Christian, like, you know, this reading the Bible was a little bit like a a nail biter and that, well, how's this going to work out here? Is he going to be successful on the cross? When they're telling him to come down and they're reviling him and spitting him, how is he going to respond to that? Well, he's going to be successful, of course, because he's God. And all of these things are set before us that we would appreciate his majesty, his glory, his justice and his mercy. Um, and all of the characteristics and attributes that are true of Christ. He says these things before us, but he uses the most simple language here. I came forth from the Father, 
I come into the world again, I leave the world, and I go into the Father. And then his disciples in verse 29 say, Lo, now speakest thou plainly, and speakest no proverb. They're still struggling, trying to understand the simplicity of what he's saying here. Now we are sure that thou knowest all things, and needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou camest forth from God. Back they go to the statement that he said up in verse 17. You believe that I came out from God. And he's just told them he came from the Father, and he's going back to the Father. He's told them that probably a half a dozen times before that in John chapter 16. Um, In John 15, he said it many, many times, and they're still not getting it. They don't appreciate that relationship that not only he has with the Father, but the relationship that they will have with the Father as well. And so, again, you have to have the Holy Ghost to appreciate these things. So then when when they've stated it again, that they believe that he came forth from God, in verse 31, he says, do you now believe? Like, right now, do you believe? And as we're getting ready to go into the Garden of Gethsemane, do, do you believe now? Behold, the hour cometh. Yea, is now come that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own. That, of course, is a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 13, uh, verse 7, that the Lord, through the Holy Ghost, had set before Israel and telling them what was going to happen. In Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, the Lord says, Awake, O sword, that would be God, against my shepherd, who's the shepherd of Israel, the true shepherd, it's Christ. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow. There's only one man that ever lived that was the fellow of God, and that's Jesus Christ. Fully man, fully God. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. And I will turn my hands upon the little ones. Who are the little ones? Those are the scattered sheep. So as this drama unfolds before us, where the Lord's going to smite his shepherd, he's going to smite Christ Jesus, He's going to turn his hands to the little one. He's going to gather all the sheep that are scattered, and we're going to see that take place literally in the lives of the disciples. When they come into the garden, they're all going to be scattered, and when he's on the cross, they're all going to be hiding themselves. And the Lord will gather them. They're going to be in the upper room, and he's going to pour out the Holy Ghost upon them and gather them unto himself. So we're going to see a literal fulfillment of this, and the Lord is setting this before us here. And then he continues in verse 32. He says, And shall leave me alone. Again, the Lord is setting a truth here before us that he went to the cross alone. Nobody went with him to the cross. He is, and he exclusively is our atonement. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the Lord says this very plainly. He says, speaking of Christ, who being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, Now pay attention to this because it's been taken out of other Bibles. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. When he had by himself purged our sins, Christ by himself purged our sins. We had no part in the penalty that was paid uh, for our sins. Christ by himself is the atonement, the exclusive work of Christ. And he shares with us here that, but yet... He is not alone because the Father is with me. One of the things we should always appreciate is how the Father entered into this process by which Christ laid down his life, how the Holy Ghost was all part of that as well. It was undoubtedly a difficult thing to do, and the Lord helps us appreciate the um, 
fact that the uh, father was with the son in this process of going to the cross, which we read about in Psalm 139. I wanted us to appreciate the unity between the father and the son in, in terms of um, him being ever with him. In Isaiah chapter 50, uh, verse 6, he says, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Verse 7, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint and know that I shall not be ashamed. Because the Father was with the Son, the Lord is saying here in John 16 that I am not alone. The Father is going with me. I will drive my strength from him, the encouragement from him. And we know that in Hebrews, um, I think it's chapter 12, where he talks about that he despised not the shame, uh, but because of the joy that was before him, um, he despised the cross. And uh, I'm going to quote it here. Um, in verse, it's uh, Hebrews 2.12. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Another place where it talks about him sitting down in, within the throne of God. So God the Father strengthened the Son. They have that wonderful relationship. He encouraged him. He strengthened him. And um, the Lord was able to, because of this strengthening and this relationship, to accomplish the things that were necessary to be accomplished, ever looking forward to the church. That was the joy. His relationship with you and with me was the joy that was set before him. Now, in verse 33, he begins to close things here. He says, these things have I spoken to you. Again, he's teaching them about himself. He's teaching them about this relationship that he has with the Father and that they have with the Father, too. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. The only peace that a Christian can find, really, in this world is in Christ. We've been talking about all of the foolishness things that are going on in the world. We went through the debacle of the election. We went through the debacle of COVID. Now we're, there's war in Europe and there's all sorts of economic distress. But that doesn't concern any of us because we're ambassadors. This is not our home. We're in Christ. And so the peace that we have, we have peace knowing that we have been reconciled to the Father through the Son and we shall live in eternity um, in glory with the Father and the, the Son. And so in him... We can enjoy this wonderful peace, knowing and appreciating all of these things, and knowing that because he's reconciled us to the Father, we don't struggle like every other person does. In the back of their head, they they're, know they're going to face judgment. He's given unto man once to die, and then the judgment. But we have this peace. We've been reconciled to the Father. In verse, uh, section B of 33, he says, In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Um, that's another one of those statements that's kind of an understatement. In the world, you shall have tribulation. People think they read from the scriptures, especially if they watch our TV evangelists, that God promises all sorts of prosperity and good health. And I'm like, no, no. What he does promise is, is tribulation and persecution. Now, one of the many things that we can appreciate as living in this world is this dependency we have on Christ and we learn to trust him. We read about how we've proved him over and over in one of the, uh, the hymns. But this is a winnowing floor, a threshing floor. And if you know anything about winnowing, once you harvest the wheat, you put it on the ground, and then it gets stomped on to separate the grain from the wheat. And then after it's stomped on a bit, it gets thrown up in the air, and it keeps coming back to the earth, and the chaff gets blown away. But the process of being stomped on and thrown up in the air is part of the winnowing process. And so the Lord uses that to help us to appreciate the things and the experiences that Christians will um, 
I'm going to use the word suffer in this world. He says you're going to um, uh, have tribulation. Now, but he says, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Now, the Bible describes this world as an evil place. There's a couple of scriptures that that help us to uh, appreciate that. And so um, those that are enamored with this world, the Lord has not yet impressed this wonderful truth on them. In um, verse 19 of 1 John chapter 5, and he says, And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. The whole world lieth in wickedness. It's described elsewhere as this present evil world. Um, A certain uh, relative of mine, when they were younger, would say, well, you know, I love the Lord, they would say, but I don't want him to come until I've learned to drive a car. I don't want him to come until I've gone to college. I don't want him to come until I've gotten married and had all of these these worldly experiences. And then after that individual became a Christian, they said, the Lord can't come fast enough because I've had enough of this world and its tribulation and its experiences. And we all have that sense, but then we stand back a little bit and go, well, Lord, please tarry until this person gets saved or until that person gets saved because we love them and you have uh, put upon my heart uh, their need for salvation. And we know... Um, we know what lies in store for those who do not believe in Christ and who do not trust in him. So as saints, yes, we believe this world is an evil place. Uh, we do uh, know that the Lord is tearing, and I would desire that he tarry until such time as others that I know and love come to know the Lord as I have come to know him. Now, with respect to this world here, it says the Lord has overcome the world, and we are encouraged in Scripture to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed uh, by the renewing of our minds. And so we can appreciate that this world puts pressure on us to do things that are contrary to um, what God would have us to do. Several places in here in John 15, 16, we've read where he said, hey, if you love me, keep my commandments. Behave yourself this way because that's better for you to do that. It's better for you and life will go, um, life will go better for you. But we are um, pressured by the world to do things the world's way. We can be ridiculed, we can be ostracized. You know, even adults, mature adults, suffer from peer pressure. And the Lord tells us again that evil communications corrupt good manners. So it's incumbent upon us to ever uh, be in the Word, to pray that the Lord will give us strength to be salt and light in this world, because that's what He has called us to do. But He says to be of good cheer, because He has overcome the world. Now, if the Lord has overcome the world, um, then so have you, because you are in Christ. Um, so I want to find a verse that says that here. 1 John 4, 19. It's not going to jump out at me, even though I have all these pages dog-eared in my book. But we have overcome the world because we are in, in Christ. He commands us to not love the world. That's John 2, 15. Love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so you can appreciate that when you meet somebody that loves the world and the things of this world, that they have not yet been um, regenerated, that they're, in fact, they are not uh, Christians. Um, verse 4 of 1 John 5, that's where it is. Whoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. So, so it's our faith in Christ that overcomes the world because he's overcome it. And so we can appreciate that if we've overcome the world, where shall we be? Well, he tells us in Revelation 3.21, he says, To him that overcometh, he's already told you you've overcome the world if you have faith in him, 
To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. There's one throne. Christ is in it because he's overcome, and so are all you and me if we are in Christ, because we have overcome through faith that is in Christ Jesus. So um, just one last thing I want to say as we uh, close up here in verse 33 is that Jesus is ever the comforter. This is right before he's going to the cross, and he's speaking words of comfort to his disciples because he knows what lies in store for him, and he knows what lies in store for them. And we should appreciate that after the cross, after his resurrection, he comes to his disciples three times and tells them very plainly that um, peace be unto you. Those are the first words that come out of his mouth in John chapter 20, verse 19. Peace be unto you. Verse 21 says it again. Peace be unto you. Verse 26, he comes at a later time to Thomas and he says, peace be unto you. Christ has secured our peace with the Father, and he has placed that in our hearts, and that we should ever be at peace, not only with him, because of his work with the Father, but we we should simply be at peace and not be fretful or concerned or anxious about anything going on in this world, because Christ has overcome the world. He's overcome Satan, he's overcome sin, he's overcome death, the grave, and he's overcome the world as well. Amen. Amen.